when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he went into Galilee um, and leaving Nazareth, etc. So we'll come back to that in a minute. What we can't believe and what I never knew until studying this a little closer is those things aren't sequential. We need to remember that Matthew was writing his gospel topically, not chronologically. And the reason we know that is because the gospel writer, John. So turn with me to John chapter 1. We're going to go there because between verses 11 and 12 and 13, there's about a year that passes. So you probably are all really wise and knew that. I mean, you know, I'm a shepherd among you supposed to know this stuff. I did not know that. I, matter of fact, when we get later into the, the book and, you know, verses 18 through 22, um, that really brought some light to that. So I'm just going to do a 30,000-foot overview real quick of John, just to let you guys know what's happening in that year between where the angels came and ministered to Jesus, and then we get into the, the, the verses that we're going to look at today. So real quick, and, and look at verse 19. Let me back up a page here. It said, um, so the, the religious rulers and the Pharisees, we're talking to John. I'm just going to do um, kind of broad stroke overviews here, and I'll just kind of give you an idea of where I'm going to be. And at verse 20, they asked him, and he said, are you the Christ? He goes, I am not the Christ. John the Baptist is saying, I am not the Christ. So they asked him, you know, moving on. They said, well, who are you, Elijah? Are you a prophet? Drop down to verse 23. He says, I am a voice in the wilderness, crying out, right? And he's, he's a herald. He's the messenger telling us about Jesus is coming. And then... If you turn the page, um, the next day, so in verse 29, it says, the next day, Jesus coming to him, coming to John the Baptist, and he said, John the Baptist, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then on the next day, go to verse 35, again, this is the, th Jesus comes to John the Baptist three days in a row before his time is done with John. And he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. If you look there in verse 37, or I'm sorry, 35, uh, the next day John was standing with his two, with two. So two of John's disciples, John the Baptist, are standing there with him. And Jesus walks up and he says it again. John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples followed Jesus. Now, if we were to go down through that, you're going to find out that's Nathan, um, Andrew. And his brother, later he finds his brother Peter in verse, I think it's 30 or 41. He says, hey, we found the Messiah. And they start following him. And then over in uh, 43, that's when Nathaniel and Philip come along for the ride. And now turn to chapter 2, verse 1. And it says, the next day, man, I'm just blitzing through my notes here. This is pretty cool. The next day... All of a sudden, they're in Canaan. Well, Cana is about 10 miles from where they were the day before. So I asked Google, hey, how long would it take at a normal pace to walk, you know, 10 miles? It's about three, four hours. So you can imagine that if they're following Jesus and they're with him, because the disciples come to this wedding, that's the next day at this, the wedding that we're going to talk about, that they probably were, you know, talking with Jesus, getting to know him and stuff, right? And this is kind of where the beginning of some of his, you know, disciples are, are starting to, again, they've left John the Baptist, and now they're following Jesus. We witness here in John 2, the, one of his first miracles that's recorded, where he turns water into wine at this wedding. These could have often been events that took place for a week, and it'd be very bad for the host to run out of wine. And then um, we see the first Passover in verse 13. He drives out the money changers, and we're still in chapter 2 of John, um, in 14 and 16. And then in John, 
John 1, we see where Nicodemus comes by night. He's one of the religious leaders coming to Jesus. And obviously, this is one of the most famous verses in all Christendom, right? John 3, 16. Uh, so a lot, a lot of stuff's happening here. And uh, so at some point, he leaves, and now he's in Judea. Judea is about 80 miles south of um, Gal the Galilean area, probably Cap Capernaum, where, we're, where he's going to end up. And, uh, but he leaves Galilee, and he's on his way back up, and he comes across this little territory of Samaria. Who's in Samaria, right? The woman at the well. They ask, and so he meets with the woman at the well in John 4.4, 4, and then in 4.39 it tells us many of the Samaritans believed in him. because Again, they asked him to spend a couple days, and they did. So all this stuff is happening before we even get to where we're going to get right now. So if I, if I have you in John, right, go back to, to Matthew chapter 4. If I didn't tell you to keep a finger in that, you should have. Just kidding. So now, as we get into this, and by the way, do you guys, I meant to look at the bulletin thing. I didn't grab one because, you know, I didn't really need one. Okay. So if there was going to be points, by the way, we didn't talk about the question of the day, did we? Hey, put that question of the day up. So when is the last time that you guys considered or reflected on the marvelous light. We're going to talk a, a lot about light today because that's what this section talks about. But Jeff's calling passage, you know, the, the marvelous light, it was in verse 9 of, of uh, 1 Peter 2. And we're, we're going to, I'm going to come back to that calling passage. But I, I had to give that to them, you know, a little earlier in the week and being the the very prepared person that I am, you know, spending eight hours yesterday finishing up for today, I may not have picked that same exact um, question of the day, but I think it sure is applicable because um, the Bible, as we're going to see, it loves to use the word light as a way to describe who Jesus is. And uh, so I really like that. So in verse 12, just read along with me here. It says, uh, when... Now, when Jesus had heard that John had been put into custody, so again, this is about a year after that, verse 11, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum. So that's where he was going to live. Now, he had just left, we can see where he left Nazareth and what happened there in Luke 4, I want to say 423 maybe, something like that. He was rejected because that was his hometown. And remember, there's no honor for a prophet in their own hometown, as the Bible tells us. So they rejected Violently, it says. They actually wanted to try to catch him and you know, do away with him because of what he was claiming to be. You know, you're the son of Joseph. I don't understand what you're saying, this type of thing. So, and, so he settles in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. So what is he talking about here? What we need to understand is, in Joshua chapter 19, it talks about these two people groups. One's in verse 10, one's in verse 32. I just like having those numbers in my head. They talked about those people groups that this is right after, remember, they rebelled against God, did not cross, cross over from the promised land. If you guys, by the way, ever have a chance to take the Old Testament survey class, I'm telling you, the one that we offer here, and it's not being offered this semester, is so rich to give you in technicolor what's going on in that Old Testament. So that's just a little plug for if you ever have a chance, because it is so helpful to know what's going on in that stuff. But we know about the Passover. The people rebel. They didn't cross the Jordan and go in because the spies, you know, didn't think it was going to be a good idea. They were going to get defeated. They wandered in the desert for 40 years. Moses left on this side of the Jordan because, you know, he didn't obey. Joshua is now the dude. So Joshua's, Joshua 19, he, and God said, go drive out the people of Canaan. 
and they disobeyed him. They did not do it to the extent that the Lord had told them to do. And what ends up happening? They end up intermarrying. So that's about 1,500 years before Christ this happens. Turn with me real quick to, and keep a thumb in or a finger in Matthew 4. But look at Isaiah chapter 9 for just a brief moment. This is where that quote we're going to read here in a, a minute comes from. But I want you guys to see the word. And I want to probably ask you guys what yours says. I didn't look at other versions. I just have the New American Standard here. Are you guys in, Matthew, are you guys in Isaiah 9? Yes. So Isaiah 9, verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. They're talking about Galilee. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Natali with contempt. He's talking about what God was, was treating them with contempt. But later, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles. All right, you guys can go back to chapter 4 now. So what's he saying here? Now, this was written, remember, Joshua happened about 1,500 years. Now, centuries has passed, and, there's, and now it's 700 years before Christ, and there's still stuff going on there, because what we don't know is in 732, what, what, you haven't, what I haven't told you yet, in 732 B.C., Assyria, which God used to discipline the, pe the people of Israel, invaded that same land, and they ended up intermarrying with the Jewish people also. So now you see, you know, two pollutions going on as far as the Jewish heritage is concerned. All right, so the plot thickens. So what's going on here? Um, all right, so let's read verse 14. For, for was, um, this was fulfilled with what this spoken through the Isaiah the prophet. That's what we just looked like in one. We didn't read on, but it goes on to quote this part in 15. It says, the land of Zebulun and the land of Tali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. I guess we did read that. So what's this talking about, the land of the Galileans? Remember, these Galilean people now, in the eyes of the pure Jews, south, right, about 80 miles south of there, would have been the Judean people, the people in Jerusalem, and those would have been the pure Jews. The people up here, they were actually... You know, and, and it even says in verse 15, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the, the land, the shadow of death, came upon the light that dawned. So understand that what they're talking about, these, the Galilee of uh, Gentiles, or it could have been even interpreted the nations, because remember, there's so many different people groups in here now. They wouldn't have had their own faith. They uh, would have been looked down upon. They would have been the mongrels, despised. Again, not the pure people. And that, that area, even though, you know, it's kind of like 80 miles. I mean, how far is it from, you know, Glendale to Gilbert? Probably close to that, right? So it's this Galilee is, a, a sub, or is the city where this would have been a suburb of. And that area was very, very heavily Jewish influenced from those people in Judea and Jerusalem. So they are, um, they're just not looked down upon. And they would have been, again, not having their own faith and stuff, just... Again, that's where the Bible's talking about, this dark place. And whenever anybody is apart from Christ, they're in darkness. I know the world paints a pretty picture, but it is, it is not. So let's talk about this light thing. How, how was, and of course we know, because in, in verse 17, I'm not going to, I'll read it real quick. Well, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. So I'm not there yet. We're going to stay back into uh, verse 16. How do we know 
that Jesus was what they were talking about, the light. If we look at verse 23, just moving forward, I'll come back to this in a minute. It says, Jesus was going all throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel and the kingdom and healing every kind of sickness. We see Jesus as the light, teaching and preaching and healing. You know, isn't it interesting that this kind of um, perfectly reveals the character of our God, that he goes to the lowly people. Remember, the, the Jewish nation of Israel would have been thinking he's coming the way that they thought he was, as a conqueror and whatever they had put in their minds. Well, God comes to the people. That point one I was going to have you write down is, who are those people? God came to those people. And guess what, folks? We're those people. God could have revealed himself anywhere. And what's super interesting is in verse 17 that we'll get to here in a minute, we're witnessing the public launch. You know, I heard one pastor say the dawning of, um, of Jesus' ministry. We're witnessing him launching his public ministry right here in verse 17 is what's going on. And uh, so let's go, I'm going to stay in light, though, for just a minute. Jesus was showing Galilee several things. Um, so let's talk about the light here for a second. Uh, put that, Caitlin, um, 12, John 12, 35 up. I just want you guys to see this yourselves. So Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. For he, it's so much easier to read my own. He who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. So again, in verse 16, he's talking about people being in darkness. And you guys can see right there Jesus saying that. Um, and John 1.19 says, There was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, um, if that's on this, if we have that, we'll put one up there, that up there, please. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, I want you guys to see this, and I'm not going to have you turn everywhere. In whose case, the God of this world, who's the God of this world? Satan, right? God has given him a leash, and he's got a certain amount of um, authority and power down here, but not any more than God will allow. So, John, or 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then in John 8, 12, Jesus said it himself. Put that one up there. Jesus began... Again, spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. I know I'm preaching to the choir, guys, but if you feel your life is dark sometimes, just reflect on his glorious beauty. That I know that sometimes things are tough, but I'm, he is the thing that can get us through, and he uses God's people and the relationships that we have doing that. So... Um, All right, so let's get into verse 17 here. It says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is actually um, also, and remember the synoptic gospels when you combine things, Mark says it, repent and believe. So I don't know why Matthew chose to omit that, but this, when he said what he said, that's what he uh, says, repent and believe. And the reason I say that is because I want to talk about Repent and believe. I think it's, um, I think it's interesting that uh, 
so often, and I think I'm guilty of it. We talk so much about the gospel at times. I have my little coin phrase, so to speak, that he came, he suffered, he bled, and he died on the cross, rose again, that we might have eternal life. But I've left out that repentance part. And it's super uber important that we understand what um, God is telling us here. Um, it's clear the Bible says that we're sinners, right? And uh, that our hearts are far from, from God, you know, apart from the work that he does for us. So repent, that word means to stop, turn around, and move toward something. In this case, you're going to move towards Christ, right? Or it can mean change your mind. Do not do the deeds of what you were doing before, but change your mind. Look at Luke 3.8. Do we have that, Caitlin? Therefore, and here's the, here's the point before I read this. Guys, when, when we truly belong to the Lord, when we truly have repented, our lives in some shape or form should look different than what it looked like before. If we, let me read this, therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, and then it talks about there, Abraham was our father. And they try to basically, right there, the Jews are trying to justify their behavior because we're righteous because Abraham was righteous. It doesn't work that way. You know, when Christ came, he is the standard. And the standard, guys, is perfection. And I, you know, and I, nobody in here, I can tell by the faces, we all know that we're far from perfect. And uh, praise be to God that this is why he's given us the Christ. So that when we're able to when God gives us the ability to be able to repent and believe, um, that's what needs to happen. And, you know, we, we need to, you need to admit your sin. You need to admit that you're far, far short of what God requires. And I don't mean it in a lonely way of, oh, woe's me. You know, I, I, I'm better at that, but I used to be really, what do you say? I was going to say a, an S-U-C-K word, but kids are in the room. You know, we don't want to. I really used to be bad at that. And really, when you're woes me type of attitude, ultimately, guys, to, to spare you the story of how God taught me that, is pride. Yes, we are sinners, but don't be such so disrupted over your sin, though we're going to talk about what it should look like, that you uh, get lost in the details of now be a light for the gospel for Jesus Christ because of what he's done for us. Right, right here, um, it needs to be a heart response. That when, you're, when you've repented, um, you're, again, your life should look different and uh, you should feel different. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So don't forget the context of what we're talking about. Repent and believe. Paul summarized this in uh, Acts 26. He was before King Agrippa. Now, King Agrippa was actually a Herod. Remember Herod the Great? That's when Jesus was um, a baby, and he was trying to, and he sent out, the Magi came to him, and he sent, sent them away to find him, and then he sent into a towns to kill all the babies under two years old in that area. Um, so King Agrippa, at the end of uh, Acts 26, when Paul's in prison, would have been the great-grandson of King uh, Herod the Great, so about 30-something years before. 
And so Paul's before him. He requested a meeting with him. He's in prison. And they, they, uh, the Jews want to get rid of Paul. So when he's in front of him, he's given his testimony. And it, we're going to pick it up in verse um, 18. It says, to open their eyes. So Paul's saying, so I came along to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light. There it is again. And from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus. Remember what happened in Acts 7? He was on the road to Damascus, and he was going to persecute Christians, and God stopped him in his tracks and converted him right there on the spot in the road. He says, so I did not, for those of Damascus first, also to Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. A life change should happen, guys. Uh, I'm refraining to say what I want to say because i got to talk about belief first, and then I'm going to wrap this up, okay? So let's talk about belief for just a second. This is, this is pretty rampant in our culture, you know, and, and, and it hit me as I was preparing. This is, this is a John quote. You know that, like, like you see Spurgeon and stuff, maybe 100 years from now. Just kidding, just kidding. No, but seriously, God hit me with this earlier in the week that he says, and so I, I said this, this is John. I don't believe that God sent his son here to earth to suffer, bleed, and die for easy believism in response to the cross. Certainly not in the context of the Bible. You guys see what I'm saying there? Well, yes, I know that we have Romans 10.9. Did I give you Romans 10.9? Um, eight and nine, or yeah, it's nine and ten. But so look at look at this. It says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We often stop there and don't go any further. But you guys can see in verse ten. Go ahead and put verse ten up there. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth one confesses, resulting in salvation. Guys, that word belief, um, let me back up. Here's what I wanted to say earlier when I was talking about repentance. Just because you say a prayer, walk an aisle, and say you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, then continue to live your life just like the world, not looking any different, I don't, I don't think you're saved. God knows hearts and minds. John doesn't. And you guys know what I'm talking about. But there, this easy believism thing that so many of the churches have taught in this country, especially it seems, have led people down a path of feeling that they're secure because they did exactly that. And their lives don't look any different. They never give any recollection. They don't attend church. They, they just think they're okay. And I, and I just don't think the Bible teaches that. So let me talk a little bit more about belief. Check out this one. This is uh, powerful. Put up that John 3, 36, please. Listen to this. Now, real quick. This is in the Gospel of John written by the Apostle. He is quoting John the Baptist towards the end of his work here on earth. So John the Baptist says this. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Remember, in the original language, guys, obedience would have been synonymous with belief. 
You can't say you believe and then have zero evidence after it if you really believe what the, what the book is saying. Obedience is supposed to follow. Look again at what John says. He says, and he lays out, he lays completely two divergent paths right, be right before us here. He who believes and he who does not believe. This serves as an appropriate exclamation on the end of John chapter 3. Remember we talked, touched on it earlier. Jesus was talking to Nicodemus that you must be born again to, be, to, to, come, to, Christ, to come to God, right? You must be born again. Talks in verse 8 there about how the wind blows and God decides whose that is and all that stuff. But the, the point here at the end is John is saying you either have sincere saving faith or willful disobedience. As John was fading from the forefront, he offered this invitation to faith in the Son and clearly expressed the consequence of failure to do so, failure to believe the wrath of God. I mean, that verse is powerful. Doug actually put this up last week, and I, I already actually had this in my notes. So, in, and I don't, Doug had a different point with what he was talking about there, but that was really powerful to me that when I saw that, um, and I, I, again, just I'm letting the word of God speak to you guys. All right, so if that doesn't get your attention, I don't know what will. And here's the point. You guys remember about a year ago, um, we were talking together about Romans uh, 8.1, right? For there is no condemnation. Why are some of us able to have complete confidence that we are okay before our God? And there's no doubt in our mind that when we die, we will be in heaven standing before him. Why? Because we know it has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with us. It has to do everything with what Jesus did on the cross and now the evidence that he has shown us. Look at um, 2 Corinthians 13.5. Just to give you a little setup, um, is what was happening here is the Corinthians were getting after Paul, challenging him on his authority as an apostle. He flipped the script on them, and then he's challenging them on their genuineness as believers. And he says... Test yourselves. Paul's saying to the Corinthian believers, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? What's the test? A changed life, right? So, again, I know that preachers of the choir, so to speak, but this is... Uh, some of you may not be at this place to, to know that you 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 know that you're okay with our God and nothing to do with you. I have a boldness, not because of John, but because I trust in the living Savior and what he's done for us, me. All right. So I hope you guys get the point about repent and believe unto salvation, that God did send his son to earth preached, to die, and was raised for the very purpose of saving people from sin. Believe in the finished work of Christ and his perfect life, and that, um, that he did take your place on the cross. We deserved to die for our sin, but God did it for us so that we wouldn't have to. All right, so look with me now to uh, Matthew chapter 18. This part used to be... Uh, I'm going to read it first real quick. It says, Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, and it was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting nets into the sea. So I am back in 4, 4, 18, going into 19 now. And he said to them, 
follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him, going from there. He saw two other brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and told him to follow them. And basically they left their boats and their father and followed him. This part used to baffle me. I'm going, well, yeah, Jesus can say, hey, follow me. You know, and yeah, they just do it, you know, whatever. And what's interesting, now we know because of John chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, right? Jesus had relationship with these guys. He knew them already. He had been hanging out with them for a year now. So they must have went back to their fishing business. Well, you know, you can imagine Jesus was setting it up that, hey, some stuff is going to be happening. My father's lining it up. And when the time comes, gonna call, I'm going to call upon you. I, to me, it, it totally makes sense knowing what we know now. And um, so the question I kind of asked myself as I'm starting to bring this thing down is could it really be that easy? What do I mean by that? Are we just supposed to be maybe a little less selfish? I'll, I'll elaborate what I mean by that. Maybe a little less busy. Maybe a little more willing to step out and get involved in people's lives. You know, I'm so convicted because this is an area I struggle with to to just spend time with people that God puts me in a relationship with, right? You know, there's people among us that absolutely do a marvelous job of doing this, and they're impacting the kingdom of God for it. So as we, um, as we think about these things, that that relationship, those relationships, I'm, I'm going to come back and touch on this in a minute. As I, as I told you, God, I think this, this little section here encompasses what our what our Faith is supposed to look like here on earth in some semblance. Um, I was just going to say, like, look at verses uh, 23 through 25. I'm just going to kind of breeze over them. Jesus was going throughout Galilee. We already talked about that. He was teaching and preaching and healing. And then 24, the news about him spread throughout all the land of Syria. And they brought, brought him all kinds of people to, to cure and heal. And then 25, and large crowds followed him from Galilee. So here's Jesus. This was Jesus's testimony of who he was that he was sharing with the world. What's our testimony? Obviously, our testimony is going to look a little different than Jesus's. But in the context of relationships and then our testimony, you know, we are, the, these relationships are ebb and flowing. I know, I talk about it all the time in the, because God has put eternity in our hearts, right? And I talk about it all the time that our lives are a mist. I know that the you know the older I get, the more I can I can see that more and more clear. I mean, we still have another 20, 30 years or something like that, right? And uh, you know, uh, but it doesn't matter what your story is. God can use that. And is and here's the deal: whether you know for a season your ministry, you know, and where your testimony is proving might be with your children, and then as that morphs, and, and not have to be the only one, it could be where you work, and we all go through changes of jobs, right? We have this, and over the decades, God has people ebbing and flowing constantly in and out of our lives, and, you know, I was just convicted that I need to pay attention a little bit more and slow down a little more, and again, the selfish part, not be as selfish with my time or even creating a life that requires me to have a lot of stuff in between so I can free up those moments so I can even... Focus on the person instead of worrying about what I got going on back home or at whatever. You know, I think you guys understand what I'm saying. So I just wanted to really 
say as we were you know, looking at this today that I think that's super important that we realize that. You know, and as you are, I would even have you guys, uh, encourage you guys to practice your testimony in some way. Now, I, I know some of you are younger people and, you know, you've been going to the church the whole time, but I, I wouldn't encourage you to have, well, why are you a Christian? Well, my parents are and I've gone to church with my whole life. That's not a good testimony. It's not even true necessarily. Just because you, right, go to church with your parents doesn't mean you're a Christian. And um, so, but I would encourage you to rehearse your, your um, thing. I might even make that like our next dinner group thing. We're going to have testimony shared of people, other people in our dinner group. What? No, but have it rehearsed a little bit, you know. And, and uh, I, I had here, and I don't think you should hold back on some of the failures and trials and struggles and and. and People want to, to deal with authentic, humble people that don't have it all figured out. Um, I just think that would be a, a super good thing to just have in your hip pocket for when God gives you that opportunity. And again, I'm speaking to myself as much as you guys. So I'm going to bring the music team back up. I've gone, I've really gone fast, you know, 14 pages of 28-point uh, font, you know. <laughs> just kidding, it wasn't that big. But uh, I am, I'm going to bring them back up. Uh, as I kind of uh, bring this to page. Let me, let me uh, answer the payoff question. How in the world, John, is this Naphtali and Zebulon, you know, passage a microcosm of our uh, Christian experience or a, a nutshell? So let me, let me tell you what I came up with. I was just as I was going to say, okay, so God has revealed the light of the world to us, right? He's given us the ability to repent and believe, and through relationships, as we go through life, we're just to share what he's done in our lives. That's it. You know, luckily, and uh, I think I have this in my communion notes, but luckily, you know, God has given us technicolor on the details behind all of that. Even, you know, without understanding of everything else, it obviously isn't that easy. But I really think that that's something that we can glean from that, of just looking at his word and understanding the importance of just being authentic, not only with people, but with ourselves and our relationship with our God. You know, ask yourselves those questions. Have I truly repented and do I live a life that, that reflects that, that shows that Jesus is the light of my life? Um, so I'm going to pray real quick and then we're going to do a song of response. I'll come back up for communion. Father God, I, um, I thank you for um, what feels like a brief message at this point, Lord. I... Uh, I thank you for your word and just how it, um, you enable it to, you know, through your word to, to minister to us. We are a lost and dying people, Lord, apart from you, and we're no different than the world. That, that those people out there that are in darkness, Lord, we are the shining light. And we have to be people that recognize that, that we are the light, and that you um, want to use us to impact the world to shine for you. Lord, help us. Give us that ability to, to shine for you, Lord, that we would be a people that um, they could tell that we were different because of our lives and that you would uh, give us opportunity to open our mouths and that we would have the courage to um, and be receptive to whatever your spirit is prompting us to say because it's not going to look the same for all of us. It's going to look different, and that's okay because you've made us all different, Lord. So again, I thank you for the gospel, I thank you for Jesus, and I thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.